Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Svidav from Autism Against Fascism. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on the program. You're a researcher and an activist looking at the issue of far-right infiltration of autistic spaces or you know, far-right recruitment of autistic people. Could you tell us a little bit about how you started looking at that and why? Yeah, so the issue of far-right recruitment in autistic spaces has been going on for basically as long as online autistic spaces have been around. I joined the autistic community in the 2010s, and that was around when the alternative rights really started getting more into focus and more popular. So so that really influenced where I was going with that because it was a problem that started to get really, really bad when I uh, was entering these spaces and doing neurodiversity activism. And you know, it just interests me. One of my earlier interests was in the history of the eugenics movement. So it wasn't really hard to go from that to studying these kinds of people. And what sort of work does Autism Against Fascism do? So it's really in its beginning stages at the moment. Most of what I do on it is monitor key influencers who develop different kinds of discourses or movements that are moving the autism community more broadly. So that includes like parents and professionals. It's, it's a bulk of it too. And also autistic people ourselves towards a more far-right direction. And that includes some people who are not themselves far-right, but are just kind of holding water for the more explicit white nationalists within their spaces. Is most of what I do. It's mostly on Twitter, and we have a p- Facebook page called Autistic Right Wing Watch and a blog that explains the sorts of things that we're looking at. I have some other projects that I'm working on where I'm trying to develop materials for self-advocates, particularly autistic self-advocates, to identify these sorts of movements and individuals who might be trying to recruit from them, but that's still in its early stages of development. Why does the far right target autistic communities and how does it go about intervening within them? So I think it's a bit of an organic process in that there's no concerted effort, as I can see from far right leaders, to specifically go 
and recruit autistic people. They quite frankly really hate that autistic people are in the far right. They think we're all, they'll use like terms like coomer weebs and everything like that. They believe that autistic people have bad optics for the far right because we're like all sexually degenerate and way too into and we can't hide our power level and stuff like that. And at least for the people I monitor, that's pretty true for them. But the people who are doing this kind of recruitment tend to be autistic themselves and they ingratiate themselves in their diversity communities and autistic spaces to try and recruit people into it because they just genuinely believe in it. When the alt-right and other white nationalists get these people into their spaces, they try and find ways to deal with it because they believe it's a problem. And they create this kind of hostile space towards them that says, you're only tolerable if you are doing something for us. So that could be, they have this notion of autistic people and autism as being really synonymous with obsession. So that's really useful for people who want to go dox someone and they outright finds that very useful. So that's sort of the dynamic there, if that makes sense. Is that sort of where the term weaponized autism comes in? Oh yeah. Weaponized autism is just, how can we make these autistic people work for us? Like it deliberately supposed to be autism is bad, but um, we can use it for our white nationalist goals. I'm sort of reminded of uh, looking at the Iron March leaks that came out last year. And Mm -hmm. there was one Australian in the leaks who was, uh, I guess, a non-speaking autistic person. (laughs) Really? But his reception by the Nazis was sort of quite hostile. Uh, he was, you know, all in, but uh, they didn't really want to have anything to do with him. Is that sort of representative of how this sometimes goes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And since he was non-speaking, he would have gotten a lot of hate from other autistic people who were speaking, um, who were able to speak too. We have in the autistic community this really big issue. It's been termed Aspie supremacy. So Aspie is a shortening of the term Asperger's, which is named after the Nazi psychiatrist Hans Asperger's, who himself kind of created a disability hierarchy where he separated out between useless eaters would be the Nazi term and little professors. He called them so it's basically his version of weaponized autism. <laughs> he literally thought that they would help the Nazis like build super weapons in the future. So Aspie supremacy is just there's a lot of different forms of it, but at the very least says that autistic people who can speak or who are considered high functioning or who are diagnosed with, diagnosed with Asperger's instead of Connor's autism, that they're able to be part of society in the alt-right that would be like part of the white race, but that people they consider low-functioning are not. It also dovetails into racism, usually. Some people believe that autistic people are the next evolution of humanity or something like that, and they're like, look and see, it's mostly white men, which means it's better. It's uh, Yeah. <laughs> It's it's weird stuff. But. Speaking of Hans Asperger, I was sort of surprised to find that it was only in the last few years that it's been revealed just the extent of what he had done as a Nazi scientist sort of was directly involved in sending people to their deaths, it turned out. I know that Asperger syndrome is no longer sort of the medical term de joie. 
Has the revelations about his sort of involvement in the Nazi science machine had an effect on people, you know, wanting to say that they have Asperger's or on the term being used? Yeah, I would say that the biggest determiner of how the term Aspie and Aspergian was a term I actually used back in the day for myself. Those terms fell out of favor mainly because of the DSM change seven years ago. I think people mostly use it as a talking point for why they're saying that people shouldn't identify as having Asperger's syndrome or as Aspies, but it hasn't really, in my, from what I can see, really changed that. I've been looking more into online communities that still use those term, still use that terminology, and that there's just been no effect. Something I've also noticed looking at far right communities is that oftentimes I think people, even without autism will self-describe as autists or as spurgs, so to speak. Could, yeah. Could you speak to that? What's that all about? Uh, it's just kind of like how some people describe themselves as having OCD when they want to say, like, I'm very particular about something. The way that the alt-right really thinks about autism is, so, oh gosh, I use this really, like, cursed analogy on my page about it <laughs> when I was discussing weaponized autism. They basically think of it as, like, Imagine Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory, if you've seen it, except he like really likes really degenerate pornography. That's basically how they're viewing it. <laughs> so it's just it's synonymous with this kind of obsession, and it's synonymous with sexual degeneracy. And if they're calling themselves like autists or saying, you know, that was autistic of them or something like that, really what they're trying to get at is that they're very particular about something or they're just really angry about something or they failed to conceal they were a Nazi. In media reportage on a number of recent cases where young men have undertaken violent action, attention is paid to their possible or alleged status as autistic as though this would in some way explain or provide means to better understand their action. How do you understand and respond to this association that's made in media reportage in regards um, to these events? Yeah, so like in short, it's bullshit. There's definitely autistic people who have committed really horrible atrocities. I think his name is Alec Minasayan, the Toronto incel who killed a few dozen people with his truck in 2018. He's, he's diagnosed with autism. He is an autistic person. He was very clearly recruited into incel ideology in a way that exploited his feelings of self-worth that developed because of ways in which he existed in society as an autistic person. But <laughs> autism is not why he became an incel and developed that ideology and developed those plans, right? It's because he adhered to an ideology. I have a belief that autistic people as well as other kinds of oppressed people who are really very often like violently excluded from dominant society um, in many ways that they're more likely to go into what we call quote-unquote extremist ideologies so anything that is not liberal <laughs> basically there's a lot of uh, autistic communists for example there's a lot of autistic socialists and anarchists in the same way, you have these illiberal ideologies on the far right that are recruiting from autistic people. And it's those ideologies which are driving people to do these sorts of things. Like an analogy I really like to use because it upsets bootlickers is you don't pathologize soldiers <laughs> for the U.S. Army for being violent occupiers of places outside the U.S. and 
on military bases uh, because they're in the service of empire, right? But it's the same goddamn thing. They believe that they are in this war. Well, they're literally in a war, but they're believing that they're in this war and they have to use violent methods to win it. It's the same thing when you see these like incels and other white nationalists. They, they are adhering to this idea that they are in a war against uh, women, often um, LGBTQ people, against the quote-unquote degenerates, um, people of color, and that's why they're taking these actions. It's not because there's some defect in their brain as you know, some psychiatrists are trying to make it out to be. And, and, and these ideas are really harmful, too. Just it's something that is going to increase alienation of autistic people and autistic youth in particular. It's going to increase policing of autistic people, particularly autistic people of color, the people who are main targets of these far-right ideologues, right? Schools in particular, after the mass shooting in Connecticut by Adam Lanza, I was actually in school at the time, they got very much into this mode where they were going to attack and like isolate autistic people because they viewed us as uh, threats. And that sort of marginalization does lead to uh, real <laughs> feelings of marginalization. And far-right um, ideologues use those feelings of marginalization and say, no, it's not <laughs> neoliberal policies. It's clown world or something like that. These sorts of negative portrayals or misrepresentations find, it seems, a fairly receptive audience in the general public who may be thinking about autism in, in ways that are mistaken and incorrect. What do you think are the most important ways of educating the general public about issues to do with autism? Yeah, so it's, it's something that I'm working on and trying to consider. It's difficult. I, so I've worked as a paraeducator, um, which I, I don't know if there's an equivalent term where you are, but basically it's like a teacher's assistant, um, except I've worked particularly to support students with disabilities um, in general education environments. And I've had these kinds of conversations with my colleagues. And I'm open about being autistic generally in schools. It's very difficult for them because when they hear about these sorts of issues of radicalization or they recall back their ideas around autism, they immediately go towards a punitive approach. Officially, the district I work in uses restorative justice. It's bullshit. They just call it that. But they really go way in on, you know, punitive measures. I do think that in general, education will happen just by autistic people coming out to many people and like explaining that we're not like that. Um, it'll come from organizations like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, uh, which is US-based, uh, explaining who we are. But it's really something I'm struggling with because these attitudes are so ingrained and producing counter-narratives, including evidence-based counter-narratives, often just does not get uh, listened to. I guess when you think about the public portrayal of autism, besides you know what we were just talking about, you also have the portrayal within pop culture. You mentioned Sheldon Cooper from the oh Big God. Bang Theory before. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess there are other sort of similar examples, but uh, I think probably something that they all have in common is that they centre whiteness. Mm -hmm. uh, what what impact do you think does that have? 
on uh, how these things are perceived and understood? Yeah, so the first thing that comes to my mind around that is it produces Aspie supremacy. So I talked a little bit about it earlier, but Aspie supremacy, I've also, I, I view it as being part of a system of white supremacy because of the fact that it's not very different in its structure and its belief systems and how it gets enacted in special education environments. I'm just going to briefly talk about that. In special education environments, there are hierarchies that are created, and these hierarchies are based on race, they're based on gender, and they're based on ability. So in the United States and many other settler colonies, you have people of color, students of color, are disproportionately put into more restrictive environments. So segregated programs, segregated autism programs, segregated behavior programs, um, segregated programs for people with intellectual disabilities. And in these programs, uh, there's sometimes a continuum of services. So some people can be more mainstreamed is what they call it when you're allowed into a general education environment more so. And a hierarchy is created around who gets more mainstreamed there, right? And then Hierarchies are also created uh, through acts of violence that occur in these places. So I don't know if this is a common practice in Australia, but in the United States and in Canada and in other places, we have widespread use of restraint and isolation. So restraint is uh, basically they take down um, a student who is having, and I quote, behaviors. I don't know what behaviors, whether they're positive or negative or whatever, but they're just, you know, behaviors whatever. A student annoyed a teacher, basically. (laughs) Sometimes literally how it's seen. And then they're taken to a a separate room to be kept there oftentimes for hours. There are different state laws that are created around that, but that's kind of the general thing that happens. And this happens mostly to students of color. And then forms of um, basically like emotional abuse, essentially, happens where they try and make you believe that restraint and and seclusion happened because it was your fault. And then, hey, if it's happening, you're going to notice if it's happening to different demographics, mostly um, students of color. So that's going to produce racism, basically, implicit bias of racism. And that's supported by uh, TV shows like The Big Bang Theory and The Good Doctor and Atypical and all those other ones. So these different forces in pop culture and in school environments will all go to create these avenues for mainly white autistic boys and men to be recruited into the alt-right. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're talking to Svi about autism and the far right. When you look at the radicalization of autistic people by far-right movements, is there any sort of correlation between the time of diagnosis and uh, how vulnerable someone is to this sort of uh, recruitment? Like, you know, early in life, late in life or not at all? Uh, I would say that most people are early life and they tended to receive some sort of early intervention, whoever that was, something like occupational therapy for motor skills or applied behavioral analysis for behaviors (laughs) or something like that. There's not too much of a correlation there. Mainly what I think the reason is, is that most people who will join these white nationalist movements are white men and boys. And... (laughs) Just because clinicians stereotype autism as being male and white, you know, they'll get diagnosed earlier. 
In terms of counter-recruitment or in terms of combating this sort of thing, we have things like the CVE industry and the you know preventing violent extremism industry. Is there anything good being done in this space in terms of uh, autistic people? Yeah, so I will say that I, I follow one person who does this work in Canada who is an autistic woman, and autistic people ourselves have been working on these sorts of things for decades. We just haven't been calling it that. So I think there's good work, and I really try and place my work in the tradition of the self-advocacy movement and the neurodiversity movement, which has come before me. But honestly, like I think a lot of the reason why my work has gotten so much attention is because there's just not a lot. It really isn't a lot out there. Is there a question that you think we should be asking you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I get that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, there, there's, I, I don't know if I touched upon like the interplay that I see between, uh, we'll call them autistic moderates and far right in the autism community. I I no, I don't think it. you have. Go ahead. Okay. So there's, this is a little bit controversial in the neurodiversity community, but what I'll say is the autistic community rather than really being a, being a separate sort of community from the autism community, which is parents, professionals, and autistic people ourselves, we're not. We're not different. Our community is very much still um, in that sort of, oh my gosh, I almost want to use the term discourse sphere, if that even makes sense, but like in that like political sphere. Okay, so <laughs> things that we're saying usually come from the wider community and that words are weird but like i'm coming up with the terms vanguard of that was like um in the united states that's going to be the autism society of america and that's the first autism political group that was created in, in the 60s it was created and it's a huge uh, conglomeration of wildly different viewpoints. You have anti-vaccine activists in there. You have some neurodiversity activists in there. You have people who use bleach to try and, like bleach enemas to try and cure their children or whatever. Like it, it's broad as all hell <laughs> um, is the point. And the trends in that organization and also just in the wider online community, they make up this sort of autism parent identity politics is what I've been calling it in some unpublished notes that I've been making. And this autism parent identity politics is the driving force of what the autism community really talks about. So the forces that are bringing that farther right are in many ways macro political forces. So anti-vaccine sentiment used to be bipartisan or nonpartisan, rather. But in the last few decades, it's become Republican and far-right Republican. And anti-vaccine anti-vaxxers are really, really prevalent in these spaces. They hold positions in like big nonprofits, uh, Katie Wright, who is the daughter of the people who founded Autism Speaks, their names are escaping me right now. She's a prominent anti-vaxxer. You have Jenny McCarthy, who's just very prominent anti-vaxxer. And on the ground, it's almost controversial to talk about vaccines, right? So that's one big thing that's been pushing the autism community and by extension, the, the autistic community farther to the right. 
Then there's another thing, and that's TERFs, so trans-exclusionary radical feminists. They latched on to this idea that trans activists, so trans people existing, I guess, are trying to turn autistic people, particularly autistic people assigned female at birth, trans. And they're manipulating us, I guess. And that's gained a lot of traction, too. One of the Autism Society leaders, her name is Jill Escher. Um, She also leads the National Council on Severe Autism, which uh, is a group that regularly collaborates with white nationalists who are autistic. She's been tweeting out a bunch of transphobic garbage about that recently. So those those are like the really biggest like things that are driving those driving that right now, and they're really inside of the far right like uh, political sphere, and that's being funneled into Trump. So a few months ago, I was starting some research on anti-vaxxers. I found all these threads by Democrats who are anti-vaxxers lamenting the fact that all their friends have become Trumpers. And they're like, how dare my friends support Trump? Don't they know how evil he is and everything? Just because he said that he's going to um, look into vaccines. Like, (laughs) I don't don't know what to tell these people. (laughs) But yeah, so those are just the biggest driving forces in what's happening here in my opinion. I wanted to ask about, you know, what the anti-vax movement was doing. You know, we've seen the the wellness, quote-unquote wellness space in the far right merging rapidly over the past, you know, few years, few decades. Yeah. What impact that was having. Well, I forgot to mention, but uh, the, like the biggest anti-vaccine organization in the United States, uh, Age of Autism, uh, they're on parlor now. They prefer it. <laughs> they, they're they just really going sh- way into the idea that they're part of the far right. The picture you're drawing is of a, a political process which is in many ways being driven from the top down, it seems, among the representative bodies that find themselves in alignment with a whole range of different uh, political forces. I guess that to some extent your own project represents a form of grassroots resistance to that to those ideas and that movement? Yeah, I also should mention there's been a parallel process happening. And I think it's, in part, the both process are reactions to each other. So in the neurodiversity community, it used to be, and the disability community more broadly, I should actually say, it used to be that disability rights was bipartisan because everyone hated us. Um, My joke for a while. But now, because the Republicans have really gone full force into hating disabled people. They've embraced white nationalism and eugenics in many ways. It's become partisan. So the disability rights movement and the neurodiversity movement have come into this, into the the broad democratic coalition, I'll say. And that's going to be the very, very broad left with uh, not like disability nonprofits and uh, social justice as like this overarching idea of uh, progressivism and social justice. So it's coming into that fold. And then of course, just as there's the far right, we also have social synanarchists really embracing their diversity. And it's a good thing. (laughs) I'm really happy about it. (laughs) Um, And it's kind of 
this weird parallel process that people are reacting to. Yeah, it also reminds me, I forgot one thing when I was mentioning all of that. So part of the autism parent identity politics right now, like one of the big driving forces of that is this idea that autism is becoming too broad of a category. So they're saying that, well, it's all well and good that Asperger's was added to the DSM or that we have a broad definition of autism spectrum disorder. But we're leaving out people who I consider to be severe autistics. Oftentimes it's their children um, who they've taken guardianship over, uh, which is a full uh, legal death, basically. They take away all the rights of the person, except for voting, although usually voting. Anyway, (laughs) the neurodiversity movement will say, well, we support human rights for everyone. And then the, the autism parent identity politics of the severe autism crowd will say, well, human rights does not apply to my child. <laughs> and uh, for the autistic people, part of what's driving their um, identity politics is a very similar thing of thinking that autism is becoming too broad, and that's the inclusion of women, people of color, and LGBTQ people. They would prefer if it was just white men. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Svidov. Thanks so much for joining us. People can check out Autism Against Fascism online. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Keep it locked in, folks. Uh, Lessons from the Disability Justice Movement is up next with Amani Barbarin, Damian Griffiths, and Kira Sherwood O'Regan. We'll be back next week. See you later. Bye-bye.